Welcome to Columbus Perspective, a weekly public affairs presentation of The Fan. I'm Dave James. The governor and director of the Ohio Department of Health held a news conference this week to provide an update on COVID in Ohio. Portions of that in just a moment. Courtesy of our sister station, WBNS10TV, Doug Petcash talks to the Ohio Attorney General about artificial intelligence and its use in child pornography. He'll also talk to a state representative from the East Palestine area where the toxic train derailment happened in February and discusses the 150th anniversary of the Columbus Metropolitan Library with its CEO. In the second half hour, I'll talk with the person behind Blood Prison, a Halloween attraction at the Ohio State Reformatory in Mansfield. That's where the Shawshank Redemption was filmed. And I'll wrap up the hour talking with the president and CEO of the United Way of Central Ohio. First up on Columbus Perspective, on Thursday, Governor Mike DeWine and Ohio Department of Health Director Dr. Bruce Vanderhoff held a news conference to update Ohioans on COVID and the new vaccine that has rolled out. We're just bringing portions of that. This is about nine minutes. Here's Governor Mike DeWine. Well, good afternoon, everyone. A lot of things are kind of coming together. We are still have a, an average of two deaths a day uh, from covid uh, in, in the state of Ohio. And when we look at that, and also when we look at the hospitalization, uh, it's exactly what we would expect. It skews very, very heavily towards those older, um, over certainly over 16. You get uh, older than that, then those, the percentages uh, go up as well. Uh, the new uh, COVID vaccine is available uh, to the public and it's been available now for about a week. And I think it's, it's getting out into the, into the retail market. Uh, it's also, of course, uh, time for people to get their flu shots. So based upon the questions I've been getting, I thought it was a good idea really to get Dr. Vanderhoff here and just to kind of go through, uh, some of the questions that, that I have been receiving. So doctor, thank you very much for, for joining us. Maybe if you could just go through and, and talk a little bit about this, the, the new COVID vaccine and who it's appropriate for. Well, thank you, Governor. COVID-19 really remains a very real health threat. Indeed, we've been experiencing recently a rise in COVID-19 cases, along with some increases in COVID hospitalizations. Now, we're, of course, grateful that these increases haven't approached the levels of past years, but that's likely due in no small part to the hybrid immunity that many of us have developed as a result of vaccination in combination with past COVID infections. That said, our recent increase in cases and hospitalizations really just reaffirms the importance of staying up to date with vaccination. Now, earlier this month, the U.S. Food and Drug Administration approved the use of a new COVID-19 vaccine designed to target some of the more recent Omicron variants that have driven cases right here in Ohio. The CDC has recommended this new vaccine for anyone six months of age or older who has not received a dose within the past two months. But this new COVID shot is particularly important for those who are 65 and older, as well as those who are immunocompromised or have serious underlying chronic health conditions. 
because these Ohioans are the ones who continue to suffer the largest burden of severe illness and death from COVID-19. But the new vaccine is now available, although following the end of the federal public health emergency in May, providers are ordering that vaccine directly from the manufacturer, just as they do other vaccines, rather than through federal and state authorities. Now, if you have medical insurance, and that includes Medicare or Medicaid, these vaccines should be covered as a preventative health service, which means you'll likely have no out-of-pocket costs. Those without insurance can take advantage of several programs to ensure they also have access to the vaccine at no cost. For example, the Federal Vaccines for Children program that allows ODH to offer vaccines free of charge to eligible children, including those who are uninsured, uh, will be available through our network of VFC providers. And for adults who are uninsured, the CDC has created a bridge access program, which will be in effect through the end of 2024. As part of that program, the CDC has contracted with CVS, Walgreens, and eTrue North Pharmacies to offer free COVID-19 vaccinations to the uninsured. And lastly, uh, on the new COVID uh, vaccine topic, uh, if you are seeking to find providers who are offering the new COVID vaccine, you can visit the CDC's website, vaccines.gov. Uh, there you can filter your search by where you live, your age group, and even if you want access to the vaccine through the new bridge program, you can also call their number, which is 1-800-232-0233. Doctor, thank you for that succinct uh, answer. People have asked me, okay, I've had a booster some time ago. Or some people have said, I only had, I got one shot. Uh, others have said, I got, I, I haven't got any shots. So w w what's appropriate now? And I think one of the things you told me, uh, you kind of look at this as, in a sense, starting over as far as the, the vaccines are concerned. Is that a good way of looking at it? Yeah, I think that, that that is. And really what the CDC and uh, the FDA have done here is say, we have a new formulation. And this new formulation has real benefits. Anyone six months of age or up is recommended to get this. But, you know, when we look at the data, it is very clear that that population, 65 and older, and those who have those underlying serious health conditions and immune uh, system issues, it, it is especially important for them. The data is really compelling that they need to get out and avail themselves of this protection. Where, where does flu come in? People now going in, uh, I assume that they can get a, in most places, they can get a flu shot at the same time they can get the COVID shot. Yeah, that's absolutely right. You know, COVID, of course, is not the only serious respiratory virus that we need to be thinking about protecting ourselves from this fall. Uh, last year, as you may recall, here in Ohio, we saw very high numbers of influenza as well as RSV. I, I think the good news is that right now, 
The flu and RSV seasons do not look like they've started in earnest yet here in Ohio, but we know that they're both just around the corner. So now is the ideal time to go out and get your flu shot. Uh, we have a long track record with these flu shots. We know they make an important difference in helping to prevent serious illness. And you can absolutely get your flu shot and a COVID shot at the same visit. Uh, the only caveat is you might want to get one shot in each arm just to try to reduce some of the soreness. Doctor, to talk a little bit about uh, RSV and who a shot is appropriate for uh, in, in regard to that. You, you told me this morning we basically have two categories, one, one at the beginning of life and, and one older. Uh, you want to yes. explain that to us? That's absolutely correct. Um, so the third virus that really hits us hard during that fall winter respiratory season is RSV. And as I've shared uh, before, nationally, this is actually the leading cause of hospitalization for our youngest, our infants who are under a year of age. Now, in terms of that population, uh, the FDA has approved and the CDC has recommended a new shot for those littlest ones. Uh, the CDC recommendation is that infants who are born during this time frame, shortly before or during that RSV season, who are up to eight months of age, so newborn up to eight months, really should get the protective shot against this. Its brand name is uh, Bifortis. And we're anticipating that those shots will reach providers here in Ohio in the weeks to come. But as you also noted, Governor, RSV can be a serious illness for the elderly. Uh, especially those who might uh, be frail due to other health conditions. And there are now two vaccines uh, that are approved by the FDA for use in the older population, 60 and older. Now, at this stage, the CDC for that vaccine has recommended that patients have a conversation with their provider to make a decision about whether the RSV vaccine for them is the right choice. So if you're over 60, ask your provider about whether you should get an RSV vaccine. That's again Governor Mike DeWine and Dr. Bruce Vanderhoff, Director of the Ohio Department of Health, from a news conference a couple of days ago. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Good morning, I'm Doug Petcast. Welcome to Face the State. This morning, the rising concern over AI-generated child pornography. My colleagues and I have been increasingly concerned about what this could mean for victimization and sexual uh, depictions of children. Stephanie General this morning discusses the new ways Ohio is clamping down and protecting kids. There's a lot of anxiety when you're in East Palestine that the people are experiencing eight months out. So a lot of people uh, feel that you know the focal point is left East Palestine and these people still have fears. Well, the report Discuss East Palestine with the state's senator who both lives and represents the community. Plus, the new promises made by Norfolk Southern, why some lawmakers don't think they'll become reality. And the next chapter in the history of the Columbus Metropolitan Library as it celebrates and closes the book on its first century and a half.
This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Courtesy of our sister station, WBNS 10 TV, here's Doug Petcash from his Sunday morning public affairs program, Face the State. A new edition can be seen this morning at 1130 on 10TV. Good morning on this Sunday and welcome to Face the State. I'm Doug Petcash. A busy week at the State House is behind us with several new bills filed, some controversial. There's been movement on redrawing those gerrymandered legislative district maps and emotional testimony from victims of abuse at the hands of Boy Scout leaders. But we're starting this week with an interview with Ohio Attorney General Dave Yost. I sat down with the AG to talk about protecting the unprotected. Among them, a warning from his office and other attorneys general across the country about new ways people are exploring exploiting children. First, though, Lindsay Mills on the topic of AI-generated child pornography, then the concerns about it from A.G. Yost today. When artificial intelligence ends up in the wrong hands, it can exploit children here in Ohio and across the country. Now, attorneys general from dozens of states are urging Congress to create a commission to combat this. These crimes are happening right now. Columbus-based artificial intelligence expert Chris Pragish is also a father. I'm definitely terrified of the potential of if this could ever happen. Knowing firsthand the capabilities of AI, he doesn't post any photos of his children online. Unfortunately, technology comes first. Regulation always tries to catch up. In our case, with this AI, the explosion at which the pace at which it is happening, it's very hard for the regulators to actually predict what else could be happening. He supports the need for more regulation of artificial intelligence to protect children. The Internet has created life for the better in many ways. It has also created more ways to exploit children. The call for action echoed by Callahan Walsh, the executive director of the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. And child predators know that, and they're using the Internet to prey on our kids. This week, in a letter to Congress, attorneys general are urging new and swift action, requesting that an expert commission be established by Congress to study the means and methods of AI used to exploit children through what is known as child sexual abuse material. The problem is disturbing. As the letter explains, AI tools can rapidly and easily create deep fakes by studying real photographs of abused children to generate new images showing those children in sexual positions. This involves overlaying the face of one person on the body of another. Images can be used of unharmed children to create new, realistic, sexualized images. The tools can run in an unrestricted and unpoliced way. Cybersecurity experts say it's more important than ever to take matters into your own hands and remember the advice you've heard before. Be very mindful with your children, who they're communicating with, what apps they're using, and always, always keep an eye on what information you're sending out. It might seem like it's a good idea at the time, but believe me, your life isn't worth it being destroyed for one picture. Lindsay Mills, 10TV News. Ohio Attorney General Dave Yost joined every state attorney general in the U.S. to say time is of the essence on this issue. As you heard Lindsay report, they are urging Congress to set up an expert commission to study how AI technology can be used to hurt our kids and then take action on what the study finds. I talked with A.G. Yost and asked how this issue first came to his attention. 
Well, in some ways, it's been around for a while because you know, back in the 90s, we had the Ashcroft case because there was a question about faked photographs, mm -hmm. uh, right, with fo the rise of Photoshop. Um, but this, uh, in the last year or so, as we've started seeing these deep fake videos and, and chatbot and GPT and some of the uh, visually oriented uh, artificial intelligence, um, my colleagues and I have been increasingly concerned about what this could mean for victimization, sexual um, depictions of children. So obviously that level of concern prompted you and all the attorneys general across the country to take some action. Um, what are those steps that you've taken in asking Congress to do? Well, we had a letter that went from all 50 Republicans and Democrats in between every attorney, state attorney general in the country, uh, signed this letter asking Congress to, first of all, start a blue ribbon panel of experts to say, what are we going to do about this? Um, because it's kind of scary. Uh, and to look at the existing law and what needs to change, what guardrails do we need to protect children? And, you know, in my view, we ought to also be concerned about uh, what do we do about the way this is feeding uh, evil desires. Uh, the fact of the matter is um, when pedophiles are using this kind of pornography, it is uh, intensifying and motivating uh, things that don't need motivated. What is your office doing or what can your office do then on a state level to combat something like this? So this fall, we will be bringing forward a couple of ideas we've been working on for the last year for state regulation of uh, some important things. I know uh, Lieutenant Governor doesn't believe we should have state regulation here, but I disagree just because we don't know everything that could happen uh, and can't do something uh, that covers every possible scenario doesn't mean that we shouldn't be looking at uh, legal protections for the things that are right in front of us. Now, um, there's only so much parents can do to protect their kids from something like these deep fake videos. Do you recommend that parents just don't put photos of their you know, youngest children on social media? What can they do to protect themselves and their kids? Well, I think it's up to society in this case to protect against scraping images off. I mean, so you don't put them up on social media. Uh, that creep down the street could use a camera with a long lens and take pictures, and you might never know about it. Uh, I think parents should be careful about what they put up on uh, social media and how long they leave it there. But at the end of the day, we're talking about the misappropriation of somebody else's photograph mm -hmm. for bad ends. That ought to be the kind of thing that we can deal with legally and provide protections for everybody in society. This isn't the, a Wild West where you've got to make your own way and, and uh, you're completely on your own. You know, I remember this is, like, you know, this is the next step in the progression of technology. It's been going on since the Internet came about. And I've watched as law enforcement agencies, attorneys general offices across the state, across the country have tried to adapt and keep up with this kind of thing. And so how much of a challenge is it to try to stay at least even 
with these bad actors out there. Well, this is no different than any other kind of crime, right? I mean, they're, they're constantly innovative and making up new ways to do bad stuff, uh, which means law enforcement has to roll with it and continue to develop. Uh, that's one of the reasons we put together uh, a, an initiative I call COP 2030 to look at the future and how do we evolve against evolving th criminal threats. Well, in other state news, we do have more ahead. This week, new promises were made by Norfolk Southern as the railroad tries to buy its way out of the East Palestine mess. People that live there, I think you go back to your regular life, but I think it's in the back of your mind. A man very familiar with the cleanup efforts there. I sat down with the state senator who lives in and represents the people in Columbiana County. We discuss where new safety recommendations stand today. Plus, emotional testimony at the State House. Boy Scout abuse survivors calling on a law change before time runs out. Right now, our country feels divided, but there's a place where people are coming together. I gotta tell you, I was nervous to talk to someone so different than me. Me too, but I'm glad we are. Love Has No Labels and One Small Step are helping people with different political views, beliefs, and life experiences come together through conversation, and it feels good. Wow, your story is so... Uh, Interesting. Yeah. <laughs> When people actually sit down, talk, and listen to one another, they can break down boundaries and connect as human beings. At lovehasnolabels.com slash one small step, you can listen to amazing, life-changing conversations and find simple tools to start a conversation of your own. I know one thing. This conversation gives me hope. It gives me a lot of hope, too. Take a step toward bringing our country and your community together by having the courage to start a conversation at lovehasnolabels.com slash one small step. A message from StoryCorps, Love Has No Labels, and the Ad Council. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Back to Doug Petcash, courtesy of 10TV. Welcome back to Face the State. Emotional testimony before an Ohio Senate committee by victims of sexual abuse at the hands of Boy Scout leaders. At issue is how nearly 2,000 victims in Ohio will be compensated from a settlement with the Boy Scouts of America. House Bill 35 would scrap Ohio's statute of limitations for child sex abuse in bankruptcy cases. That statute must be removed for victims to receive their full share of the settlement money. Ohio victims say they want to be treated equally. There should exist no statute of limitation that shields perpetrators from accountability. Moreover, the nature of trauma is such that it frequently compels survivors to remain silent for years. As witnessed in the experiences of many men I have encountered as a part of the Scouts Honor Community, including myself. Ohio victims could receive anywhere between tens of thousands of dollars and hundreds of thousands of dollars in damages. President Joe Biden ordered a federal coordinator to oversee long-term recovery efforts in East Palestine. It's been seven months since a Norfolk Southern train crashed, spilling toxic chemicals and igniting that large fire. The EPA will continue to oversee removal and disposal of toxic waste from the site. The president wants an updated report on his desk within the next 30 days. Also this week, Norfolk Southern says it will pay the difference in lost home values for people who live near the site. By accepting the money, however, the homeowner will sign away their right to sue. 
Senator Sherrod Brown calls the pledge to pay up a, quote, empty promise, saying Ohioans deserve their day in court to hold Norfolk Southern accountable, and this program denies them that. And this week, I spoke with State Senator Michael Rooley, who lives in and represents the East Palestine area. He sits on the State Senate Select Committee on Rail Safety. I started by asking him what he thinks are the key components or recommendations that came out of the Select Committee's report on the derailment. Well, the report tackles a lot of different subjects. Uh, part of the subject I like a lot is the detectors because we're going to look at the bearings when we uh, the trains go over the crossings so we can see if there's a temperature uh, elevation or if there's a sound that is maybe uh, signaling that we have a problem with the bearings. And also they're looking at uh, testing soil and, and the environment for years to come. That's a part that I really like a lot. So uh, actually, it was a bipartisan where a couple of people from the other side of the aisle, myself, that we have proposed an amendment at the very end of the mm-hmm. whole committee where for 20 years we can absorb, uh, observe oil and air sampling because there's a lot of anxiety when you're in East Palestine that the people are experiencing. You know, we're almost eight months out. So a lot of people uh, feel that, you know, the focal point is left East Palestine and these people still have fears, uh, especially the carcinogenics that could hurt them, you know, four, five, ten years down the road. So we thought that 20 years was a nice window that we could really get our hands around whether there's going to be future problems. Does the report itself and the committee have teeth to make these improvements happen, or is the next step up to the legislature? Well, the next step is going to be actually in uh, the next budget. So I don't know if that would be something that could be handled in the capital budget or if that's going to be kicked down the road till we get to the other budget. But the recommendations are there, and not only that, but with the one amendment, uh, you know, you have to be careful with constitutional law as far as, uh, you know, um, money that is tied to how these processes work. But we took it as far as we could possibly take it. So it's completely set up, the blueprints there. So when the budget comes out, all you have to do is fill in the parts. Now, you live in Salem. You represent the East Palestine area. You're there among the folks who are dealing with this now. What is the feeling on the ground among those who live in the area? Well, a lot, a lot's changed. You know, we had problems with the governor from Michigan where she wasn't allowing the, the contaminated soil to leave. So if you would have been there in like April, May or June, it's a lot different than these Palestinians you see right now. In April, May and June, you still had that sweet chemical smell in the air. We had contaminated soil everywhere and only one of the tracks had been replaced. Now both of the tracks have been replaced. The soil has been removed and taken off of you know, ground. A lot of the businesses are opening up. So if you never knew there was a problem there, and I took you to East Palestine today, you probably wouldn't know there was a a problem. But, uh, you know, being a Monday morning quarterback, we see that... In particular, right now, this summer, that there's a lot of agriculture that surrounds the area, whether it's in Nagley or whether it's throughout Columbiana or southern Mahoney County. And a lot of the farmers said that a lot of their buyers are nervous about buying product that is from East Palestine. So uh, Ann Vogel, the director of the Ohio EPA, I I have to give her uh, a shout out. She came up with this system where we do constant soil sampling. So you actually have uh, results from the soil that you're growing this product out of the show that it 
it is clean soil. And I would like to incorporate that with the 20-year lookout where when we say that we're doing air quality control, because we do have citizens there, there's two or 3,000 citizens living within the greater East Palestine and Nagli area, but we do this soil sampling too. I think that's going to be really essential to getting back to normal. Are people still nervous though about being potentially contaminated themselves? It's a little bit of a different nervous. I think if this was four or five months ago, I think it was much more panicky. I think now, you know, even people that live there, I think you go back to your regular life, but I think it's in the back of your mind, you know, and we have, um, you know, the governor and the EPA have a, a permanent office there. And, you know, we are trying to get FEMA to have a permanent office there, too, with a health center. So uh, I think that is an amazing aspect of this. And finally, what do you hope is done on the federal level? You have, you know, the president not yet declaring a disaster declaration and also the Railway Safety Act. I think we have an amazing possibility right now. I think with our commission committee that we had with the Ohio Senate, I think we did a lot of the groundwork. And I've seen that not only Senator J.D. Vance, but Senator Sherrod Brown have uh, reached across the aisle, which in Washington you don't see a lot. And I think they both realize that this is a very, very important issue, not just for my district, but for all of Ohio. You know, we saw right around the disaster at East Palestine, we had four other train derailments. So I think J.D. Vance and Sherrod Brown really could be essential in making something federal happen. And, uh, you know, if Sherrod Brown can get the ear of the president and the administration to p- help push this through Congress and what the work we've done in the state house, I think Ohio could lead the, uh, the future for one of the safest states for rail. Senator Rooley, thank you so much for your thank time you. today. Appreciate it. Yes, sir. And it's expected that federal bill should make its way through Congress by the end of the year. The bill would set several new requirements for railroads, including mandating using those hot box detectors every 15 miles. Still ahead, from a single reading room to a high-tech learning center, we look at 150 years of the Columbus Library. And with the funding measures up for vote this November, I'll ask about the plans for the next century. Columbus Perspective is a public affairs presentation of WBNS Radio. The opinions expressed on on this program are those of its guests and do not necessarily reflect those of WBNS Radio, its staff, management, or sponsors. Every two minutes, a woman in the U.S. is diagnosed with breast cancer. And in that split second, her life changes forever. The toll of breast cancer is great. The need to support those who are battling the disease today is even greater. We're fighting alongside patients because we know one moment can change a lifetime. United by hope, we can end breast cancer. Join our fight. Save lives. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Back to Doug Petcash, courtesy of 10TV. The Columbus Metropolitan Library is asking voters to approve a levy that would bring in $39 million for library operations in its first year in effect. If approved, homeowners would pay $53 for each $100,000 of their home's assessed value. This is the first time the library has put a levy on the ballot in 13 years. It's a move to secure the library's future, and it comes at a time when the Columbus Metropolitan Library 
Library is celebrating its past and its progress to where it is today. 2023 is the 150th anniversary of the Columbus Metropolitan Library. And CML CEO Pat Lasinski joins me now to talk about all of this. Welcome to the show, Pat. Thanks, Doug. Great to be here. Well, let's talk about the levy first of sure. all. Why does the library need this money? Yeah. Well, the levy has been a part of the library's financial support since 1976. And uh, the time frame between our levies is usually a long period of time, 10 or more years. When this last levy was passed in 2010, we told the voters that we wouldn't come back for at least 10 years. It's been 13. It's been 13, so we think there's been a good um, uh, extension of our promise. And also, we think we've done some great work over the last 13 years. I think what uh, is important for voters to realize is that when they vote for a levy, it is indexed to the year that it is approved. So our annual increases since 2010 have been four-tenths of one percent on average for 13 years. So at some point with eight and nine percent inflation, you know you have to go back. And so the levy supports really everything that the library does, uh, the materials, the technology, the programs, and facilities needs. Well, let's move on now and talk about the present and looking forward. I mean, I'm sorry, looking back. So how how is the Metro Library celebrating its 150th from here forward? Well, there's been a lot that we have rolled out this yeah. year because the it is such an important milestone in our history. First of all, to imagine 150 years ago, this library was formed before the airplane, before the light bulb. Um, yeah. Just pretty, uh, uh, pretty amazing to actually see that. So um, we have had numerous author programs. We have had a special promotion with many of our cultural partners where showing a library or obtaining a cultural pass allows a family mm-hmm. to visit one of our cultural institutions at no charge. Uh, we had our first ever uh, Columbus Book Festival over a two-day weekend in July, our gift back to the community from our library's foundation. And almost 34,000 people attended over two days. Wow. And so the... It, this is a town that loves its library, it loves reading, it loves books, and we're just so thrilled to be at the center of it. So looking back 150 years, how did this all get started to be where it is today? Well, this is so hard for us to really appreciate the perspective. Eight years after the end of the Civil War, yeah. a group of community leaders established the library. It was in the, uh, it was a reading room in the old city hall at that just period a reading of time. Room. Just a reading room. And it actually took 37 years until the main library was built and opened in 1907. What's really important is back in 1870s and and through the, the end of that century, public libraries in many parts of the country were segregated libraries. This library in its founding documents said it would be free and open to all. And in fact, that was such an important principle that when the main library opened in 1907, still there today, over the front door, open to all. And I think it guides our philosophy, and, and, uh, and we serve everyone who walks through those doors with the same level of service that um, they, they should receive. Now, you've been with the library a decade or so now. What are the keys to making the uh, Columbus Metropolitan Library a library of the 21st century? Well, I think it starts with service and uh, r- respect and relationships. We have a, 
incredibly dedicated staff. We have a customer first philosophy. All of our employees go through that level of training. It's really to talk about the importance of what each customer needs. We can say that we serve millions of people every year, but it is the sum of the individual relationships that our people have. And I, I think that is the heart of, of any organization's success, is the dedication and passion of your people and their ability to deliver that service. Right. Pat Lisinski with the Columbus Metropolitan Library. Thank you so much and congratulations on 150 years. Not that you've been there for all 150 of them. Thank you very much. Sir. Thank you, Doug. Well, that is all of our time for Face the State. Thank you for being here with us today. Have a great rest of your day. That's again Doug Petcash, courtesy of our sister station, WBNS 10 TV, from their Sunday morning public affairs program, Face the State. A new edition can be seen this morning at 1130 on 10 TV. Up next on Columbus Perspective, information about an attraction in Mansfield called Blood Prison. It's where the Shawshank Redemption was filmed. When kids need medical care, they will often face stressful and life-changing experiences. They miss out on the things that make being a kid fun. Starlight Children's Foundation has delivered happiness to 17 million seriously ill kids and their families at more than 800 children's hospitals and healthcare facilities. Our programs entertain and inspire hospitalized kids. Learn more at starlight.org. That's starlight.org. When you're high, you feel different. You think different, you talk different, you draw different, you listen to music different, but you probably knew that. Problem is, you also drive different, and not in a good way. That's why driving high is illegal everywhere. So if you're high, just don't drive. Make a plan to get a sober ride. Because if you feel different, you drive different. Brought to you by NHTSA and the Ad Council. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Hi, this is Dave James, and on the phone with me is Victor Amesquita, who is the haunt coordinator for Blood Prison in Mansfield. How are you? Good. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for uh, talking to us. Tell us what Blood Prison is. Blood Prison. It is a Halloween haunted attraction we run up here in Mansfield, Ohio, at the uh, historical Ohio State Reformatory, which uh, most people know as the Shawshank Redemption Prison, where they shot that movie uh, Shawshank Redemption back in the 90s. Um, we run a big Halloween attraction here. Uh, it's a big old prison. It's perfect for it. And the building in itself is, is uh, just gorgeous inside and out. Um, so if you ever get a chance to come and do a tour, it's uh, definitely worth the time. And, of course, checking out Blood Prison as well. Uh, if you're into the Halloween stuff, uh, we, we really do um, an amazing job with my team that just builds these great sets and really tries to take you out of uh, the element, and it, it looks great. Now, we're recording this uh, the day before you start and airing it shortly after your opening night, which I guess is September 29th, right? Yeah, that is correct. We open September 29th. So what are the, what's the schedule going forward? So we open the 29th, and it's from September 29th through October 29th, um, every Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. Okay, and what can folks expect? You can expect to, uh, you know, assault of the senses type of situation. Um, we do kind of everything in here. 
Um, we're a prison, so we try to, you know, prison theme it. We have the warden's widow uh, and her two guards walking around out in the in the queuing lines, and uh, you'll see her out there, be able to get a photo with her. And then uh, as you come in, uh, you'll get to explore the inside of the prison, only, you know, set for an apocalyptic wasteland or, you know, stroll through the blood prison chapel or the blood prison infirmary. And we've even got uh, mess of clowns that are uh, uh, inmates that like to dress up as clowns. So we kind of go everywhere. It's really interesting how Halloween in the last, you know, I don't know, 20, 30 years has really picked up. I mean, when I was a kid, it was a kid event, strictly, pretty much. Yeah, it really has. I mean, um, it's, it's gone beyond just, you know, taking your kids trick-or-treating, but kind of, you know, evolved from the, you know, the classic Frankenstein and, uh, you know, Dracula horror movies um, that would, you know, people would want to do at a, you know, maybe an older haunted attraction from, you know, back in the 70s and 80s when it was just, you know, they were a lot smaller and it was kind of more character-based and everything, which it still kind of is, but just on a bigger scale. So it really has, the game's been upped in the, in the haunted house world, and it even bleeds over into other holidays. We do a Christmas event. Some haunted attractions do St. Patrick's Day and um, Easter, Valentine's Day. So it's really kind of blown up everywhere. Talking with Victor Amasquita. He is the haunt coordinator for Blood Prison in Mansfield. Now, when folks go through this, uh, anything to be aware of, like uh, strobe lights that may be harmful to some people or anything along that line? Yeah, I mean, you know, there's there's uh, definitely strobed areas. And, you know, of course, if you have, you know, if you're epileptic, you, you know, probably not a good idea. Um, but for the most part, it's um, what you would, I don't want to say what you'd expect, but it's what you would, you know, think of as a haunted attraction. But there are definitely... Um, dark areas and, and strobe lights that you kind of got to, you know, watch what you're doing a little bit. But for the most part, it's, you know, just like any other one. Mansfield kind of put itself on the map with kind of a a niche group of people because of Shawshank Redemption and that prison. It's kind of neat. Yeah, I mean, there, I mean, not only that, but uh, the Shawshank Redemption thing is, you know, is huge. But they've done a lot of other movies from low-budget movies uh, to just a few years ago, they did an Oscar award-winning movie called Judas and the Black Messiah. We also have a um, annual uh, music and tattoo fest up here called Incarceration, where you get, you know, we get pretty big bands like Pantera, Slipknot, Rob Zombie, Korn, um, all these bands that are, you know, nationally recognized at all the other, you know, festivals. And they do that right here in Mansfield, along with, you know, Blood Prison and um, the Shawshank Redemption, the self-guided tours. Um, it really does uh, bring a lot of people to the area. It's really nice. And in the past, uh, on the anniversaries, they've even had the director and, so, and some of the prominent actors from the film that have shown up and had a good time there. Yeah, we had a great time at the 25th. Um, Frank Darabont, who directed The Shawshank Redemption and other movies like uh, The Green Mile. Um, he was the original uh, creator of the series, uh, The Walking Dead. You know, um, so he was here and um, a lot of the, I mean, you know, Morgan Friedman and Tim Robbins weren't here, but pretty much a lot of the other, you know, top actors in the Shawshank Redemption were here on the 25th and next year is our 30th. So there's, you know, more coming with the 30th anniversary as well, which will be in August of 2024. So, you know, we're excited about that too. And I've seen lists where the movie itself has actually been considered the number one movie in America. Yeah. On, uh, I know for, I don't know about now, but I know for a lo the longest time, it was the, 
considered the greatest movie on IMDb, mm-hmm. uh, the inter- Internet Movie Database. So it was on that forever. It's still up there. Um, it's just one of those iconic movies. I mean, yeah, it was shot here at the prison and in Mansfield and, you know, numerous other areas around the Mansfield area. Um, but the movie itself is just a great movie, you know, in, in pretty much every aspect. So it's just one of those, you know, great things that just happened here that we're thankful to be a part of. Talking with Victor Amasquita, he is the haunt coordinator for Blood Prison, which is uh, the old reformatory in Mansfield, built in the, what, late 1800s? Yeah, they started building here in 1886. Wow. And it was actually going to be torn down until that movie was made, right? Yeah, well, I mean, they were, once the movie was completed, then it was set for demolition. Um, but the Mansfield Reformatory Preservation Society were able to come in and and uh, save the day. You know, yeah. long story short, that's pretty much what happened. They ended up buying the building and, um, you know, was, you know, and started preserving it, you know, for what it is, you know, even now it's still, there's a lot of preservation going on, but um, it's come leaps and bounds since the early days, right after uh, Shawshank when they almost uh, knocked it down. But yeah, the big portion of the building they saved and, you know, I'm definitely thankful for that. Yeah, that's tremendous. Uh, Victor, if folks uh, want information online about uh, how to get involved and to see Blood Prison, what do they do? So if you want to get some tickets to Blood Prison this year and have some Halloween fun, you just go to bloodprison.com and you buy your tickets there. Now, that's the only place you can buy your tickets. We don't sell them on site. Uh, You'll buy a time slot, and then you arrive maybe 10 minutes before. So, for instance, if you buy a 9 o'clock ticket, you you get here just maybe 8.50. And then uh, once 9 o'clock hits, you're let into the queuing area. And that really cuts down on uh, the big, long waiting lines that we had here for so many years. So the big waits are over, and it worked really well for us last year. But you get those at bloodprison.com. And you can even get tickets at the Ohio State Reformatory uh, website for something called Beyond the Scare. So if you're too scared to come at night, there's a guided tour during the day that you can take as well. Oh, that's excellent. Uh, Victor Amasquita, he is again with Blood Prison at Mansfield. Thanks so much for the time and information today. All right, Dave. Thank you for having me on. I appreciate it. Unused prescription opioid pain medicines can spell trouble. Safely dispose of opioids before they can hurt your family. Find a drug take-back option such as medicine drop boxes. Visit www.fda.gov slash drug disposal. A message from the U.S. Food and Drug Administration. You want to feel important. You want to be a part of something bigger, something that matters and can help change things. You want to feel like you belong. We know. We felt that way, too. And that's why we did something about it. We aren't just our National Guard soldiers. We are normal people just like you. And together, we can make a difference. Take on your legacy. Visit NationalGuard.com to find out more. Sponsored by the Ohio Army National Guard. Aired by the Ohio Association of Broadcasters and this station. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Hi, this is Dave James, and on the phone with me, Lisa Cordes, who is the president and CEO of the United Way of Central Ohio. How are you? Great. Thank you for having me this morning. Thanks for talking to us. Tell us about the United Way. I know we all, in general, kind of know what it is, but but you're the best person to tell us what it is. (laughs) Well, great. Thank you for asking about that. Uh, That's a good place to start. United Way continues to be the largest privately funded charity in the world. So we are a global um, organization. 
and in our country, there are about a thousand United Ways in, in um, United States and serving um, many communities uh, with a focus of mobilizing the community to care for its most vulnerable uh, residents. Uh, so we raise money and activate volunteers uh, to solve our community's most pressing problems. So here in central Ohio, how many agencies do you work with? In central Ohio, um, which is primarily Franklin County, we fund 91 organizations. Wow, that's incredible. Mm-hmm. And you are out with a report that's uh, pretty striking and kind of alarming about the plight of Ohioans. Right. The framework is called United for Alice. And Alice is an acronym that stands for Asset Limited Income Constrained Employed. So Alice represents the many people in our country, in our local community, that um, earn are working but don't earn enough to be able to pay for the basic costs of living, given what it, what it takes to live in, in Franklin County. Um, but they don't qualify for any public benefits. So they're really um, st- stuck, right? So they, ca- they don't earn enough to, to um, be able to afford the cost of living in Central Ohio. And they don't, they earn too much to qualify for any public supports. And it's a growing population of people that really struggle to make ends meet. So a lot of times when you look at uh, a city or a county to figure out what kind of shape they're in, basically you might look at the poverty rate, but that doesn't reflect what's really going on with uh, the needs and how they're able to meet those needs. Right. And so I'm reminded, you know, as this report came out, that the federal poverty level was established uh, in our country in the 1950s and hasn't changed. And it's it's one formula across the community. It doesn't matter the cost of living. So you could be in rural Wyoming or in New York City. It's the same. And what Alice does is for every county in the country, you, there's a they have a survival budget calculator where you can plug in if you live in Licking County, for example, or Newark, you can plug in your information in terms of your how much you earn, and it'll tell you what is there a gap between what you earn and what it costs to live. In, in Newark, as an example. So, you know, we're really urging uh, policymakers, legislators, and others to understand that the federal poverty level does not tell the full story, and the Alice population just continues to grow. And it's really made up of uh, working people that make our country run, right? Like, um, you know, we think about um, waitresses, and uh, people that run restaurants and cashiers and nursing assistants and, um, you know, cooks. They're they're the engine, you know, of our community, and uh, they can't make their ends meet given what they're paid. You know, it's so interesting when you say that the federal poverty guidelines haven't been properly updated. And, you know, I think back to when I was in high school, which was a long time ago. (laughs) Uh, Minimum wage when I got out of high school was $2.30 an hour. and. I just talked to somebody from Policy Matters Ohio the other day who said in 1968, which was before I was out of high school, but the effective minimum wage in 1968 was $14 an hour. Wow. And now I think it's I think seven twenty-five an hour. Is the- right. It is unbelievable. So clearly wages have not kept up, right, with our growing 
expenses of the cost of living in our community. We did, you know, there was some uptick in and and hourly rates, wages during the pandemic um, and hardship kinds of financial incentives that were put in place. But it was it's just not enough to make up the difference. Talking with Lisa Cordes, she's the president and CEO of the United Way of Central Ohio. One of the statistics and your report is great because you show, uh, you know, down to the county level and there's uh, kind of interactive maps to click on and put your mouse over. And one that struck me was when you talk about the difference between poverty and and the Alice rate, Delaware County, you know, poverty rates only four percent. But the Alice rate there is 17 percent. That's more than Mm -hmm. one out of six. Right. And that's the um, right. The most affluent county in our state. Right. And for Ohio, across Ohio, 38 percent of our of our state is Alice or living below the federal poverty level. That's significant that it's more than one third of us in the state. And uh, stark differences, too, when it comes to uh, the makeup of families, Uh, families with uh, head of household being single female with kids. 73% 73% are below the Alice level. Mm-hmm. Uh, with males, it's 49%. But if, if it's a married couple with kids, it's only 12%. Right, right. You know, it, we are in a community and a time where it really takes two incomes to support or to survive as a family. And the family unit is just kind of falling apart these days, too, which isn't helping, mm-hmm. right? No, that's right. You know, I was really struck by the reminder of the federal poverty level. So for a family of four in our community, the federal poverty level would say you need to earn $26,500 to be able to afford the cost of living. Alice says for a family of four in Franklin County, in the modern economy, you need to earn $63,684 for a family of four. That is a huge difference that policymakers need to understand. One of the things that makes it even more alarming is, you know, we've gone through, uh, granted, things are getting tougher now, but the last 10, 15 years have been, by historical standards, pretty good times. We're looking at an unemployment Mm -hmm. rate of 3.5%. I mean, it just doesn't get much better than that. Right, right. And our, you know, our companies and our businesses are, are desperate for employees. Right. With this report, then, where do you go going forward with this? How are you getting the uh, information out? Who are you targeting the information to and that kind of thing? We are taking this data to inform legislators. And then United for Alice is um, housed out of the United Way of Northern New Jersey, and they now have 27 states. So it's a movement that's getting um, a lot of traction around this is this is this is our country's problem. And for us to be able to advocate around what does it mean to be able to, to survive and then thrive in our community. Um, it's, uh, I think we're, we will have, we're building a stronger and stronger case around changes for the federal poverty level. Talking with Lisa Cordes, president and CEO of United Way of Central Ohio. Has uh, the pandemic and, and just all the current situations that are going on with uh, the economy, you know, the higher interest rates and all that, is it causing any shift in the United Way of Central Ohio, your focus on which agencies get higher priorities and that type, that type of thing? Well, yes, I will tell you that we have a new impact um, 
business line, and that is around stabilizing families so that children will be more successful in school. And we're really focused on the importance of third grade reading. Mm -hmm. And we had in, in Franklin County, we had too many young people who were not reading proficient at the end of third grade before the pandemic. That's the greatest predictor you'll graduate from high school. If there's just a clear correlation between passing the reading proficiency um, test at the end of third grade and graduating from high school. So during the pandemic, the, the, the scores plummeted. So one example is, you know, in Columbus City Schools uh, in 21, only 29% of third graders were reading proficient and only 14% of black children. The racial disparities are significant. So we are laser focused on working with schools and districts and families. Our role as United Way is really stabilizing families so that the children can be more successful in school, that they can get to school, that attendance is, is high. Uh, so we're, we're focused on and meeting the basic needs. We, we hear a lot when working with districts that children are hungry. So we have food strategies. So it's about meeting those basic needs of families. But it's it's essential because we think about 10 years from now, right, if, this, if only 20-some percent are reading proficient, what does that mean 10 years from now around what unemployment, crime, and those kinds of homelessness? I think the impacts of the pandemic are going to be with us for a long time. Yeah, it's amazing. When you look at a 9-year-old kid, which I guess would be a third grader, their uh, kindergarten year and first grade year were completely thrown off course by this pandemic. Right, right. And they were they had challenges before the pandemic, right? Given that the living Alice, you know, so there's lots of stressors in too many of our households. Um, it's 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 alarming, but and it it's not unique to Columbus. You know, it's happening across our country and and particularly in urban areas where education impacts are significant. And unfortunately, you know, I've been uh, seeing a lot of stories lately and and conversations about how even as kids get older and become uh, young adults, that because of uh, social media and and just being able to do so much online now without actually interacting with people, that there's just a lot of social anxiety and just kind of checking out from society and just kind of uh, living more isolated lives. You know, it's interesting that... um, we also are seeing it in the school districts. Uh, there's a real challenge with attendance right now. It's significant. And um, that's a, a direct correlation to the pandemic. Kind of a change of you know, ritual, you know, the diligence that it takes to get to school every day. Um, so they're just seeing higher than ever absentee rates. One of the things on the other end, too, that could uh, factor into this uh, Alice rating that you have is with seniors. You know, we've, we're going through property reappraisals in, in Franklin County right now and likely to see an uptick in property taxes soon. Right. And we, we're seeing SNAP, uh, you know, access to food. There are a number of benefits that are being reduced or coming to a close. One of them is we have, you know, really been able to prevent evictions during this time uh, because there's been monies from the stimulus packages, the pandemic packages to support families so that they aren't able, they aren't, they have monies to prevent eviction. That money's going to go away. And so last year, 2022 in Franklin County, we had the highest eviction rates ever in our country. Now 
they weren't set out. It's different. One, you know, you're evic- you get the eviction notice, but being set out, there was less than a thousand people actually set out because of stimulus monies. But what's going to happen when those monies run out? Right. Lisa Cordes, she's the president and CEO of United Way of Central Ohio. Anything else you'd like to add? Well, I just uh, really appreciate uh, the opportunity to share this information, and I hope people will come to our our website at um, United Way of Central Ohio, liveunitedcentralohio.org, to learn more about Alice in the news section. And the United Way of Northern New Jersey has lots of information about Alice where you can Look at other states you might be interested in, or for anyone in Ohio, you can pull up your county and uh, learn things probably you weren't aware of before. I really recommend that people go to that because there's just a, a ton of information, and it's uh, it's pretty user-friendly. I think it, it, you've, done, you've done a great job with it. Great. Lisa Cordes, again, with the United Way of Central Ohio. She's the president and CEO. Thanks so much for your time today. Thank you for having me. This has been Columbus Perspective, a weekly public affairs presentation of The Fan, heard each Sunday morning at 6 on WBNS AM, that's 1460 ESPN Columbus, and Sunday morning at 7 on WBNS FM, Sports Radio 97.1 The Fan. Join us again next Sunday for Columbus Perspective.